Hello and welcome to the 108 podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Raquel. And we are the Type 1 Together Girls. We are stripping down life with type 1 diabetes from two people who live different versions of it every single day. Please remember Type 1 Together does not give medical advice. We are only sharing from personal experience. And today we have a very exciting guest. We have Andrew here to share all about his life with diabetes, but also so many other cool projects and experiences that he's had. I actually met him through the like adventure house that I did where I was traveling around in different uh, cities and I met someone at this like tech party. It was so random. And I was like, I have diabetes. And they were like, wait, you have to meet my friend Andrew. And so we got coffee and we've been awesome friends ever since. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is a, this is a pleasure and an honor. Yay. Well, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your journey this far. Yeah, I'm glad to. So I've had type 1 since 2008. So we're going uh, 15 years strong. And um, it's kind of become, I guess, the focal point of my career and my interest in school, which I I just graduated um, last December. And um, I'm I'm trying to uh, find all different kinds of ways to address problems that I'm I'm noticing in, in the population. Yeah. When were you diagnosed? Yeah, so I was eight years old in 2008. It was, uh, it was during the summer, and um, I was at day camp. If we, I don't know if we do the the diagnosis stories here, but do it. Um, Tell us. Yeah, it was. I feel like it was pretty typical. Like my mom had a crazy intuition. Like she had this crazy idea that I had diabetes before I was actually diagnosed, and mm. it kind of came together for her when we were visiting my brother at camp. Um, because another camper there had type one who we still know today, actually. And he's, he's a a good friend of ours now. Um, he was bringing Gatorade into the infirmary and my mom was kind of like curious about that. She wanted to know why he was bringing Gatorade into the infirmary. So we found out that he has type one diabetes and my mom kind of struck up a conversation with his mom. Um, and I guess she claims that's when her light bulb went off because I was like dropping weight, like crazy, and going to the bathroom all the time and just kind of like developing a lot of, and this will become, you know, much more, our conversation will focus on this more, developing a lot of like behavioral problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess this came together for her in this moment. And she, on the drive home from Wisconsin and from the Chicago area, um, made an appointment at the pediatrician for a diabetes test. I kid you not. She literally called them. She's like, my kid needs a diabetes test. My mom does not have a medical background. Like this was crazy. Um, So yeah, so she picked me up from from camp the next day, from day camp. And um, we went to the doctor and that was kind of like the changing moment, right? So yeah. what was yeah, your I blood sugar? Still very well, but that was yeah, that was July of two thousand eight. So here we are now. Do you remember what your blood sugar was when yeah, you? Yeah, I don't. I don't remember exactly. I like the number that just always comes out is five forty seven. I'm pretty sure it was about five forty seven. But I remember mm-hmm. I had an A one C over thirteen, and um, back in those, I don't know how they do it now. Back in those days, it was which I still think is kind of strange that like they diagnosed me based on just ketones, like the presence of ketones. Wow. So like they didn't even, they came in with the glucometer and were like, you have type one diabetes. And I was like, wow, okay, this is, 
you know, and I had a yeah. friend as well at school. So I had some exposure to it and, and it wasn't like a completely foreign thing to me, but, um, everything that came after was. <laughs> yeah. So on that, can you share a little bit about what it was like mentally and like socially being diagnosed at eight and then how, I know your relationship with diabetes has evolved a lot over the years. So kind of how you have adjusted over time. Yeah, I think, I think at first, and I'm also just going off of like an interview, I interviewed my mom, like for, for a film I was working on last year, um, maybe even this year, just, just toward the beginning of the year, um, and asked her a lot of these questions that I hadn't really like thought of or asked her. Um, so a lot of this is, I'm kind of like, like drawing on that story. Um, but I, at first was like really on top of it. I was ultra like proficient for, especially for an eight-year-old. And like, I was injecting myself, like before I left the hospital, I just immediately wanted to like be in charge of it because, um, I didn't know any other way to cope with it. So that lasted for like a year. And I went to like, I started third grade and like, I had a great system set up and like, I had the best schools, um, growing up, which was, was so helpful. And again, will become a big part of our discussion today. Um, but things were going pretty well. Like all my friends knew I had diabetes and like I was, I was managing well. And then like, I don't remember exactly how it changed, but it definitely changed. And, uh, I would like lock myself in the bathroom to like avoid pump changes and just kind of became like the worst. I'm so sorry. Um, I kind of became like the worst diabetic, <laughs> which I know we shouldn't, we shouldn't call ourselves that, but I, I was, I was really struggling with it. Um, and that all came emotionally and socially. Uh, it was not like the medical part I understood and it was, it was frustrating. Um, I still like, I, you know, I still feel like every time I change my pump site, it feels like the first time and I've said that and I've been pumping for 14 years and I still feel like every time I do it, it reminds me of the first time I've ever done it. Um, but that part was never that confusing. It was the other things. It was it was the social and emotional side of it that that started to creep up on me. And then you know you try to develop a sense of like identity, um, especially when you get to like you know twelve or thirteen, and you develop more independence. And like it just became kind of uh, a roller coaster that I didn't really like get a grasp on until I was probably like nineteen or twenty. How did your parents handle that? Because I I have to tell you, I am getting so emotional listening to this because there's just, you know, my little one has her whole life ahead of her. And I've thought about all of the different scenarios and I'm sure there's thousands more that I can't fathom. So like what kind of support did your parents provide for you? You know, things of that nature. That That's a great question. And like, I, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time now in the last five years and, and especially in the last year, like mentoring kids with type one and like seeing the, you know, that whole perspective, the caretaking perspective, um, which is super similar and super different at the same time. Um, but I mean, my, my mom had like, I, <laughs> I was not a good athlete growing up. <laughs> I, I, I was just not 
I didn't like it that much. And I also like, I just didn't find it fun. Um, and I wasn't that good. Like I just wasn't some people, my brother, he's like naturally just so talented at athletics and I wasn't. Um, so when type one came around and it just made things like that much harder to deal with at practice and during games. And like, this is before, um, this is before, you know, CGMs were like really good and proficient and like, and actually like kept accurate, you know, records of your blood sugar. Um, and this is before even at times that I had a pump. So it just became like a problem and I already didn't like going. So the fact that I had to like deal with, again, the social consequences of like excusing myself and like all these kinds of, it was just too much. And I, I, at the same time had like a budding interest in like entertainment and acting and filmmaking in general and improv and all these kinds of more kind of creative things. Um, and my mom just saw that as kind of like the golden opportunity. She was like, all right, you know what? Like you can stop playing sports, um, but I want you to try acting. You need to find something new. And I was like, okay. And she'll still tell it this way. Like she brought me to the acting school to test out a class in an afternoon on like a Sunday. And, um, she was convinced I was going to hate it. Like she just thought that I was not, not going to, to gel with the experience, but nonetheless, she brings me in. I go in there. I had the best time. I remember that so well. Um, I had the best time at the actor's training center and, uh, I was hooked. So I immediately signed up for like every class I could find and switched my whole life from, uh, having this terrible experience with sports to having this like newfound uh, passion. Um, and then of course, you know, with type one, it's good to be in motion and active still. So I was like biking. I loved biking. I would stay active, but you know, I left, I left athletics and I, I headed toward, toward the creative stuff. So it sounds like they were your parents, your mom specifically like signing you up for these acting classes and stuff. They were exceptionally supportive and like she at least the way I'm interpreting that story is that she kind of like understood that you were emotionally and socially struggling and she pivoted in an attempt to make your social life make more sense to you and like to suit your personality. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, she did. It became much easier to kind of champion that thing. And I guess like, like the, the arc of like where I'm, where I'd be going with that is like, you know, you have to embrace the uniqueness of the condition and you have to embrace the challenges and the obstacles and like learn and grow from them um, to bring more meaning to your daily life. Because if you don't, you still have to live with it. So <laughs> you can, you know, you can harvest its potential, you know, all of its energy and all of it, you know, its lessons and the things that you can, you can, you know, channel into empathy and like connecting with more people, or you can just, you know, suffer from it. And that's totally up to us um, in a lot of ways, not in every way, but in a lot of ways. Um, and and so access to care. Is- <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, Andrew. I love that. You know, I love that. We've talked about that a lot together. It's you, you have no other choice. So it's like, what are you going to decide to do? The- yeah. It's like, so like one of your guests said, like on a few episodes ago that they, if they have a bad day with diabetes, like they just wake up and try again because they have to. 
And I was like, that's amazing. I love that because like I had a, like the night before a podcast about diabetes, I had like the worst blood sugar, like horrible. And I changed my pumps. I did everything I was supposed to do. And like, you know, that sometimes that's just how it works, but we have to like, we have to press on. And that was kind of like the point of, of, I guess what I'm saying is like, we we have to just keep going and doing things that we think are important and meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The harvesting the unique energy and then therefore like folding that into empathy is a really interesting like point about diabetes and having diabetes and living with it every day that um, I've, I guess I've thought about, but I've never been able to put into words like that. I feel like there's so many type one diabetics who are ultra creative, even if they are also like more on the athletic side, it still feels like there's creative threads. And I wonder if that's because it forces an empathetic nature, which then like leads to creativity. It's very interesting. Yeah. Anna, our diabetes educator always says that like diabetes is an art, not a skill or what's the word but either way it's an art not a science yes and it's like so true like we have to kind of be creative in the way that we're managing and trying to find different ways to make things work for our lifestyles so that also could lead into creativity I've never thought about it that way wow I think anyone who experiences something that truly like challenges them in life like creativity has to be a part of their solution if they want to overcome that Mm -hmm. yeah so with that, will you share a little segue. bit yeah, about how you created your own major at USC? Tell us all about that because it is just completely fascinating. Well, thank you so much. Like that's, I had so much fun uh, doing that. And I, I, I want to share the story more because I feel like I want more people to be, you know, taking, you know, if they're, if they're going to go to college, to take that experience more into their own hands and, and to use it as an opportunity to actually uh, make some form of impact, or at least to begin to kind of define that impact. Um, so I, like most, I guess about a third, at least a third of college students in America wanted to change my major. Um, and like also still high population people wanted to do it again. So it started off as chemistry and then it went to journalism and then I was in business school. And that's when things really came together about how much I was not fulfilled by the experience. Um, so, you know, second semester rolls around and, uh, my sophomore year and I was enrolled in all these business courses and I didn't like any of it. And, um, I was like, you know what, this is, this is a problem. You know, I feel, I feel very strongly that, that there's something better I could be doing with my time here. And that, you know, maybe I could find a way to tie it into something more personal. So. I left the business school, um, which my parents were not, my mom especially was not super thrilled about, but I left the business school without another plan yet. I just was like, I'm going to become a part-time student. So that's what I did. I dropped down to part-time. I took two GEs and then COVID hit that exact semester. So it was kind of insane because whereas I had a lot of friends who were in like their most intense classes that semester of like pre-med or pre-law or something, I was already like half in school. So the transition was like not that difficult. And I ended up being able to use that opportunity to really explore different majors because the whole school was basically shut down. So 
I found a program called interdisciplinary studies. And what it basically allowed you to do was to sort of bring a question to the table um, that you felt needed multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary research in order to be answered. Some question that couldn't just be thought of biologically and it couldn't just be thought of psychologically and, and it couldn't just be thought of in, in one avenue, but it really needed like a unique blend of classes to answer this question that you have some connection with. Um, and I was like, well, this is an awesome opportunity because I've been really interested in studying type 1 diabetes from a more psychosocial perspective. I know there's so much research out there um, and a growing amount of research on its medical effects and on biological cures, as well as on device technology and all of these kinds of more kind of pharmaceutical aspects of the disease and medical aspects of the disease. But there really isn't much research um, on how it affects us socially and emotionally. And I was drawing on experiences I had with children, uh, mentoring them, um, and other interactions with people who had type 1. And I was like, well, what if I can build a major that's based around studying how diabetes affects sort of the mind and, and, and one's social life? Um, and I brought that question to the school and they were like, yeah, this is, this is cool. Like you can, you know, give, see if you can find someone to support this and, and give it a try. So I spent the next several months reaching out to a lot of different professors who were researching diabetes. And, um, actually I had two professors that each told me that they would only sign on if the other professor sold on or, or signed on. <laughs> So I sold them by just telling each of them that the other person had already signed on. Oh my god! <laughs> and then they both did it. It actually worked. So they both signed on based on the premise of the other person signing on. And um, good for you. Yeah. Thank. And and then and then we had the keys. Like we were ready to go. So I majored in type one diabetes psychosocial research. And I minored in cinematic arts. Um, I created a, a proposal, a proposal for um, a new clinical study that would better associate uh, blood sugar control with diabetes distress and, and social well-being. And that kind of became like the focal point of the whole degree was just this idea that diabetes is treated as a medical condition in practice by majority, when really it's a condition that is medical that is social, that is emotional. Um, and more importantly, it's not just each of those three things. It's the relationship between those three things. The idea that your mood can affect your blood sugar and your blood sugar can affect your mood. And that all has to take place in the real world in a social environment is highly complex. It is like way, way, way beyond what research focuses on right now. And, um, you know, I have ideas about why that is. And, and there's a lot of thought about why that is. But more importantly, um, what can we do about it? How can we start to, you know, prove that we need social and emotional research to support people that have the disease today? Um, and I made a film about it too. Um, and that kind of sealed up that experience. So wow. did you make a film about like your research and your findings or your like theories, or did you make a film about the action items that answer the question? Like, what can we do about it? That's a great question. I, so the film was, the film coincided with the thesis very closely. And that was like, there was really specific. 
because the idea was that I could actually cite the film in the paper, that it could it could exist as like a component um, and that the interviews that I was going to you know conduct in the film, that you know the language from that would actually have purpose in the thesis. So that's what happened. I ended up transcribing a lot of that and putting a lot of it in the paper and kind of like talking about it. So that it was really contextualized, like within the whole project. But the main theme was what like what what fears do you live with because of type one? And the idea was I wanted to show people what the disease is actually like beyond blood sugar. Um, the way we explain diabetes is very flawed. And that's something that I've also thought a lot about because the way we explain it makes it sound like the solution is very simple when in fact the solution is like super, super, super complex. So saying that like, oh, type one diabetes, you know, my body doesn't produce insulin, so I have to take it. Does that really describe your experience with diabetes? <laughs> like, Hell no. <laughs> like, no, like that's not how this works. Um, <laughs> it's like, that's insane. So, the fact that that's how we explain it, I feel like that has its own like detriment on our well-being because every time we're forced to explain it to someone, it's like, I always feel like even to this day and even with like doing all of these things related to diabetes, when someone asks me what it is, I, I go blank for a quick second <laughs> because I'm like, well, how can I, like, what, what am I going to tell you? What parts yeah. of this am I going to let you in on right now? And yeah. how much time do I have? <laughs> yeah. How quick is this going to go? Um, but when we're forced to play it down in a social setting, I feel like that subconsciously closes the amount of room we give ourselves to experience this at its full spectrum. Yeah. And it diminishes your your lived experience. Yes. Completely. Yeah, it completely does. And that's not like that's exactly the the problem that I'm trying to address is like, how can we improve the lived experience with type one diabetes? Um, and I don't think that question is like being championed at all. I really want to bring that question to the forefront of, um, of our community. Yes. I want to cry. This is like the fifth time that I can like feel, <laughs> feel my chest getting tight. <laughs> Just. Every time I see Andrew, like he always says stuff that I'm just like, yes, yes. Like you're putting into words things that I felt for so long and we will have you on again to like dive more into that research because there's so much to talk about there. Uh, you're so smart. <laughs> like I'm just like, wow. You're so smart. Yeah. I also want to, to really like thank the people that supported the committee, Dr. Ann Peters, um, who's like always pushing the envelope with clinical research and comprehensive care and really like embodies um the kinds of uh qualities i think are important in in a type one doctor and then also dr alan watts who uh kind of took a leap of faith with this um because he's a neuroendocrine researcher so like he's doing stuff that is is very focused on the brain and 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 very uh, biology heavy but um this project compelled him uh, in an interesting way. And we ended up having conversations that went, you know, across so many different topics and so many different disciplines. And I was able to elucidate uh, what life with type one is actually like for him. I mean, just, just knowing like just the times that I'd have to even like be late to a meeting or like, or like call out because of a blood sugar problem, like that had so much gravity in our relationship. 
because he spends all of his time like in a lab studying rat brains. And I got to check that out, which was a lot of fun. And I, you know, got to learn how to use like the microscope they use and, and kind of like spend a little bit writing a paper on that. But um, he really like pushed, he challenged himself in a way that I, I pretty much don't ever see researchers challenge themselves. And he was willing to ask questions and, and uh, he was willing to humble himself and make himself open to learning new things, which is really what researchers need to do. Um, and, and Dr. Watts should, should be a, a complete example of, of how the open mind can, can broaden a researcher's perspective. Um, so he's brilliant. And, uh, and I thank him, I thank him a lot and often. That's awesome. I love it. Okay. So we're going to dive into this other large topic. I'm so excited to hear from Andrew. Um, a little background. I babysit for some families in LA, but I get so many requests. So I'm not always able to do everything that they are looking for. And one of these situations, this family, amazing family, they wanted me to uh, sit at their child's school or it was like a summer camp kind of situation and just sit outside of the classroom and kind of monitor her blood sugar. And if I needed to come in and dose something, I would do so. And that way their daughter could just kind of be a normal kid and not have to worry about it. Um, but I would still be there so that the parents could be at their jobs and, you know, not totally focused on it. And I wasn't able to take that on, but I did connect them to Andrew and he had an incredible experience. I feel like with so many profound like realizations um, throughout the process. And for the sake of keeping this family private, um, we're going to call Haley <laughs> as the daughter that we're referring to. And um, Andrew, can you just walk us through like from start to finish with that experience, how that relationship with the teachers, with the daughter, with the family, like how that progression happened. Because I think you got an inside look in what it's really like to be in a classroom setting and what it's like for the teachers to be dealing with so many other kids, but then have to pay attention to this one person's diabetes and also deal with a caretaker. Like there's so many levels here that parents just don't get an actual look into. And so I think this is going to be so beneficial. Take it away. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, this was like, I am so humbled by my experience with Haley. Um, and I'm amazed by the relationship that we've built together. And I think just as its own, like small piece of, you know, the story, like it is, it's been amazing to watch her understand the uniqueness of our relationship at such a young age to watch someone be able to begin to comprehend empathy for the first time in a, in a you know, in a truly like unique way because we both have this disease is like, it just fills me with so much like happiness. It's amazing. How old is she really quickly? So Haley is three years old. She was diagnosed when she was 15 months old. Um, and she had a pretty intense diagnosis story as her parents describe it to me. Um, I mean, ICU, DKA, like the whole, the whole nine yards. Um, and it was during COVID and her mother was pregnant. Um, so <laughs> this was, I mean, it just, you know, totally, a, a, a shockwave to the family. Um, but yeah, the time that we were working together, um, Haley was in summer camp just this past summer after, uh, either her second, I think her second year of preschool and she was about three. 
Okay, so what was your role? Like, what did they explain for you to do? And then what really happened? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Such a, a, a powerful question. Um, so first, I want to say that uh, I really support this family and that I, I really, um, I believe in them and I believe in Haley. And I, I believe in uh, their approach to this. But of course, like, there's only so much you can know in so much amount of time. And when you can pair that to um, someone with experience, uh, maybe like Raquel or myself, um, you know, there's obviously just things that we know that feel like second nature that um, someone who's new to this might not know. And that's especially true when you have a toddler or infant with type one. Um, I was lucky, like part of my degree in school covered childhood psychology. And that was very specific because I wanted to understand how children develop to better understand how they might develop with diabetes. And that became like a completely critical part of this. So I had like just a very like foundational understanding of, you know, where her vocabulary might be at, kind of how uh, able she was to comprehend certain ideas, what things might make sense to her and what things might not make sense to her at all. Um, and I tried to use that to kind of gauge, you know, my care and my relationship. But what the parents wanted for me to do was to be like basically a ghost. Um, they wanted me to have as minimal involvement with her daily life as possible. And the idea there was that I wouldn't, you know, make her feel different, that she wouldn't be different um, or isolated or singled out or, you know, whatever uh, uh, sense of alienation she might experience because of a caretaker being present because she has diabetes. And that defined how my first week went. So I was trying to be extremely behind the scenes. I was following her on Dexcom remotely. Um, I was having a meeting with the teachers just quickly in the morning to ask when snack time was, when lunchtime was, when activity times were. I think without a doubt, those are the three most important questions of the day. Really two questions. When are they eating? When are they moving? Um, and I guess third would be when are they not moving? Um, and I would ask these questions and um, they would give me the answers and I would sort of make a plan for how I, you know, thought her day could be best managed. Um, and, you know, this involved obviously figuring out predetermining snack, what snack was going to consist of, weighing it out if that needed to happen because they did a lot of group snack in this preschool. Um, lunch was a lot easier because her family had control over that. So everything was toast out, but snack was definitely a bit more nuanced because you know, they wanted her to eat what the other kids were eating. Um, shocker wasn't always that, you know, simple of stuff. And I have this conversation a lot, like, what can you eat? It's like, well, what can you eat? There's nothing, there's nothing that you can eat that's good for you that would not also be good for me. And there's nothing that you can eat that's bad for you that wouldn't also cause me a problem, right? Like the, the foods that are difficult for someone with type one to manage are foods that you shouldn't eat probably in general. Um, that's, you know, that's just the easiest way of explaining it. So, you know, these were challenging foods. And the biggest problem I noticed was that they didn't understand what I was doing because I wasn't there to explain it to them. And moreover, they didn't understand what was happening because uh, no one explained it to them. So they were left to their assumptions. And um, without, again, without any like, like negativity or, 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 uh, or, or neg you know, nothing negative towards this, but they, you know, when you see a three-year-old, you don't really assume their disease is that serious. 
when they're like happy and running around and stuff all the time because they barely feel their blood sugar or don't really understand what they're experiencing, it's extremely simple to just write that off because they're adorable and they look happy. And you don't like you see someone who's got a more a more obvious disability, then you're struck with empathy all of a sudden because your senses are overflowed with the sight of someone in distress or or up against something. But diabetes can be very subliminal, be very behind the scenes. And when we have it as such, it's really easy to misconstrue the severity of it. And I think that was a huge component of what was happening. Um, so me coming into the picture as someone with diabetes completely kind of changed, you know, the way I was explaining what was going on. Um, but the first week was, was really tough because I would get text messages. You know, they say, we're going to plan to eat at 1030. And I would get it, you know, my plan would be to come in at 1015 to doser for snack and that, you know, things would go smoothly. We'd have some pre-bolus, everything would be good. I'd be there to monitor it all as well. Like we would build in seconds. Like we had a whole system going on. So like when the kids asked for more food, like we had already dosed her for that. So she thought that she was just going to ask for more food and everything go seamlessly. But like, luckily Haley's a, like, she's a great eater. If like your kid is not, I'm terribly sorry. That is a whole other consequence and a problem. And that's just difficult. Luckily she likes to eat. So if we, you know, dosed her for an amount of food, there's a guarantee that she would finish it. And that made us feel safe to do this. But I would get a text at 10.07 that they were serving the kids. Is she ready to eat? And I'm like, oh. you know, my alarms start going off because I'm like, okay, on one hand, you know, if I don't pre-bolus her for their not very type one friendly snack, it's going to throw her for a loop and she's going to go high guaranteed. And then maybe low because of that. And if there's no activity after, especially it's like, wow, we're really like, now we're going down a roller coaster. On the other hand, if I pull her aside and don't let her eat with the class, there's a social consequence there and an emotional consequence there. And, and, you know, the research isn't there to show how that might manifest, but I think anyone with experience with the disease can tell you like, it's super weird and awkward. Um, and it doesn't feel great. And you can develop a very odd relationship with food just because of these types of situations where you're not allowed to eat when everyone else is eating. And that terrified me more than anything. So I was like, you know, constantly going in and like dosing her on the spot and like trying to just maybe like pull some of the carbs out of it and replace it with something. And it was, it was a nightmare. And the teachers didn't understand why I was so upset. I think that maybe they just thought it was like I was inconvenienced by it or I don't know what, but they just could not figure out why this was such, why this caused me such an extreme amount of frustration. Um, now her caretaker, her primary caretaker at school, um, when I shadowed them, uh, they had no problem pulling her out of class and kind of setting her aside when diabetes got in the way. But that's something that I was not okay with. Um, and that's where the turning point kind of came is when I realized that this girl needs an ally and an advocate and she needs some secure attachment. She needs to know because she understands that she has a, 
a disease. She understands that she can't really eat without permission from an adult, a special permission. She understands that, um, you know, occasionally she needs to be pulled aside for various things, that she wears a pump, which not everyone does. She understands the uniqueness to, to some degree. Um, but she needs someone there who she feels she can trust to help manage her disease. Um, and second week, I said, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm not going to hide and be a ghost. I'm going to be there the whole time. And I'm going to make this as safe of a process as possible for her. And I'm going to give her the sense of security that she can always, uh, she can always be safe and can always ask for my help um, and, and go about her day normally. So uh, this approach was super well received by the teachers. Um, I decided that the only way to allow them to understand what was going on with her would be to just explain everything I was doing all the time, just explain everything. And um, that's what I did. So I told them all about pre-bolusing. I told them about how different foods react differently with um, you know, your blood sugar, how activity has such a huge impact on the timing of dosing. Um, on what the actual dangers of going low are and what the dangers are of going high are. And I also kind of gave them, uh, I think the strongest resonance came when I told them that she has the exact same disease that I do, that there's nothing different about what she's going through physically. And we're just like looking at her, you know, she's adorable and she's running around on the playground and I'm standing there and I'm telling them this and they're just like, didn't really know how to process it. One of them started crying. Um, and that was the turning point. They completely changed their entire interaction style with me and with her. And um, it went from getting text messages and alarms going off in my head the week before and them telling me that they have 20 students, so they can't make special arrangements for her. They went to, hey, you know, we could eat any time between 10 and 10.30 this morning. When is it best for Haley? And I would be like, you know what? It actually would make a huge drastic impact on our day if we ate at 10 today. Because it's 9.45 right now. I see her. She's trending down. She's going to go low soon. If I can save correcting her for the low and then trying to make sure I can dose her for a snack like immediately after that would have a great impact on our day. Thank you so much. Let's eat at 10. No problem. And that all came from education. It just came from their understanding of what she was actually experiencing. So bringing like a voice to the table, bringing uh, experience to the table, totally changed uh, her experience at school. And her blood sugar was so much better, like just so obviously better. That's such a good lesson just in general, even for me as someone living with it, because we don't often let people in on what it's really like because we don't want to put more of a burden on them. And I think a lot of parents, when they go into a school, they want to give the teachers as little information as possible so that it seems like not a big deal and they can just take care of it and give the food or whatever because you don't want to be a burden to them. And I get that to a point, but then they can't really understand. And then you have these parents that are mad that their teachers don't get it, but it's like, how much did you really tell them? How much did you really go into the depth of what it's like to live with this? So, right. yeah. And then there's the whole side of just like, most people don't get someone like you in the classroom. We'll get into that more in a second, but yeah. Amanda, are you going to say something? 
Yeah, it's just very funny timing because as you're saying all these things, Andrew, I'm thinking my daughter is three and she's in preschool right now. (laughs) And so I've had to, if you see (laughs) me looking down, yes, exactly. If you see me looking down at my phone or if you notice that like I'm not paying attention because I'm currently texting her teacher, we are very lucky and at a preschool where they are very determined to give her the most quality and normal, for lack of a better word, experience while also managing her blood sugars to the best of their ability. And we've talked about this in past podcast episodes where I don't expect perfection from them. I just expect safety. Um, And, but, you know, like the safety comes in when it's like, okay, she's been over 200 for 30 minutes now. And I know how my girl works. And if we don't start getting some extra insulin in her, now, then I'm going to fight a high for six straight hours. And then she mm-hmm. feels like crap. And then she's going to stop listening. And then you're going to talk to me about her behavior and whatever. And her teachers are slowly catching on to all of that. And they're really amazing. But it's just, she's, her teacher is texting me right now saying, you didn't, or there's no sticky note for card count on her lunch. And it's because this morning we all woke up late. My husband had to get out of the house to catch like an early meeting in office. So I didn't have his help making breakfast and lunch. So I had to get both of my girls breakfast ready, both of their lunches ready, them both ready for preschool in the car out the door. I had like a 30 minute time frame to do all of that, <laughs> which is my fault for sleeping till 715 instead of waking up at 630. But that's just how it goes sometimes with toddlers and it's, it's so interesting hearing your perspective, Andrew, as like a, I am solely a caretaker of this three-year-old and I am also her type one ally. And my like goal is to just be like, basically make her experience as seamless as possible and balancing that in my head, like that experience that you're explaining with my experience as a parent, my experience with Hattie's teachers thus far, my experience with other people in her life is just very interesting. I don't know. I don't really have a point other than, <laughs> yeah, there's no wow. point. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just it's, a, it's a really unique time. It's a really unique age time in life to have type one. Um, because you're not in any by any means independent yet. So, but at the same time, you can't really advocate for yourself yet either. You don't really understand what is going on. And I, I would try like over and over again to kind of reach her understanding of diabetes from a from a physical perspective, like what she actually like experiences physically. Because like, I mean, as in like an adult with type one, or I mean, even as like a teenager with type one, like you, you feel everything. Like you, when you're high, you, you notice it, you're low, you, hopefully you notice it. Um, but when you're that age, like they, they, they struggle to understand these sensations physically and combine that with like vocabulary and all these things, it can be really difficult to develop a sense of understanding of how much they are aware of. Um, 
but I would just do it. We did a lot of mirroring, a ton of mirroring. Um, so like if she needed to do something for diabetes, I would do the same thing. So like Aww. if we need to test her blood sugar, I would let her test my blood sugar. Um, you know, if we need to change her site, I would show her my site and tell her I changed it that morning. And like, we would always be trying to go through actions together. And if I ever had like a need to correct my own blood sugar, I would let her kind of help make that decision. So I'd be like, yeah, you know, Haley, I'm going low right now. Like, what should I have? And yeah. let her like, tell me, you know, applesauce or something like that. Yeah. Um, and really what I'm trying to do there is, you know, help her understand the disease because when you can help someone else with it and teach someone else something, you know, it, it reinforces your understanding. Um, and, uh, it also, you know, ensures that she knows she's not alone. Um, that other people are living with this and dealing with this. That is the power of the babysitter list. Sorry. <laughs> I just have to say it. It is like I great. Like I made extra money in college and now whatever. That's not why I do it. Right. Like it's like nothing else to be that person for a young child with diabetes. And it was so impactful for me when I was younger having a type one babysitter, even though it was only for a short period of time. Like you don't feel as alone. You get to do things together. You learn things from each other. I can't tell you how many kids now have tried a new Dexcom site because they saw me do it or decided to go on a pump because they saw me do it or whatever it is. They just get so excited. And Haley that we're talking about, I still do babysit her uh, every now and then. And she just gets so excited whenever I see her and we get to you know, show our pumps and wherever our sites are, we always show each other and all the things. So even if you don't want to hire a babysitter to go out, like you don't feel comfortable with it, just invite the person over for a couple hours with you. Like, let them be that inspiration to the young kids. I don't know. I think it just is totally life changing. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But so, that's actually the problem. That's the yeah. biggest. Thing. That's kind of I think where I was gonna at least make sure I headed with this um, because I think it's especially important, like for the listening community. Is like, and it and it, it it's unrealistic for a huge you know, portion of our community to have full-time help with their kid all the time. Uh, and how can we, you know, mitigate the consequences of not having an aid for a toddler with type one? Um, there's, you know, there are some uh, institutional things behind this because certain disabilities qualify for state refunded and state subsidized uh, uh, AIDS and, and privatized care and stuff like that. Um, but I, I don't really want to position the conversation on that. The point is that it's, it's, it can be a very hard thing to even find. Um, it is something that's, that's reachable for your family. It, it can be hard to find. So what can we do? And the biggest question I'm asking myself now is what can I do to improve the lived experience of kids with type one, um, unanimously in, in a comprehensive way. And that's kind of where I'm, I'm heading these days actually is, is really yeah. answering that question and, and, uh, and developing a, a new, a new way to train people with type one diabetes on how to live with it. Can you talk more about that? Are you yeah, in a so position to expand on that? <laughs> It, it is, it's still super early. Um, it came completely as a result of my experience with Haley and in college studying what I studied. Um, and, and also being like a huge media fanatic. Um, that's what I've been doing for the last year is 
is pretty much working as an independent cinematographer and 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 producer um, and trying to answer this question of, you know, how can I use media to address the many questions and concerns I have with type one? Um, I, I felt very strongly after school that continuing in academia was not where I wanted to go with this, um, that I wanted to really be more on ground level um, and that media could be a huge component of improving people's lived experience with type one. So I am in the early stages of developing basically what a comprehensive training tool for life with type one that will allow you to experience decision-making um, in our world without the, the consequences of having to face it um, in reality. Um, and the idea with this, with this program is that it will introduce you to decisions that you don't know you're going to have to make until you have to make them. Um, and it's going to introduce you to the many aspects of the disease that are completely impossible to cover in your endo appointment. Um, and it's, it's going to be, you know, so realistic that it will involve life events. It will involve many components of life that happen outside of diabetes and it will relate them back to diabetes and it will show you how things like a parent losing their job or insurance providers being switched at the company they work for can cause a huge pain point and a huge question mark for how they're going to manage their kids diabetes these are things that aren't covered in in, in clinical care practice how you know how could we and that it's not all a sense of of blame it's a sense of a bigger solution um, and that's the biggest thing here is, is, is this is not all to say like, everyone's been doing this wrong. I have a better way to do it. This is to say like, we just have so much more to address than is being addressed. There is so many, there are so many more facets to this disease than just what you and your endo can cover together. And, uh, after seeing how much, uh, benefit came from explaining to Haley's teachers what I was doing with her, uh, her blood sugar and, and her management in general. Um, I, I believe that a, that a training tool could, could have a really profound impact and could save people um, from a lot of a lot of fear. Yes, this sounds incredible. Is this like is the goal for or is the idea, I guess, for mainly like teachers, like the non-primary caregivers in children's lives. So teachers, coaches, aunts, uncles, grandparents, whatever, or is it for like all of the above, like your child's newly diagnosed and here's this training program for like the parents and then they share it with whoever else. I think, um, a lot, and a lot of these questions I'm still answering because I feel like, uh, you know, it's, it's just so early. Um, but I think first version, most my most important critical first version would be parents of toddlers with type one, because this is a disease that requires the better part of an adult brain to manage. And um, if the adult doesn't have experience living with type one, some parents do. Like there's a lot of parents with type one who have kids with type one, and that's a whole, it's a completely unique thing. And that's a full circle discussion that, 
uh, the kid who was bringing Gatorade into summer camp with my brother now has a son and his son has type one and I, and they have a page together and I'm following them. And that's like this, it, I mean, it, like I get super emotional just thinking about it because, um, it's such a crazy thing to see, but, um, parents of, of ch- kids with type one, I want them to understand the social and emotional aspects of the disease. I think a lot of parents, this makes complete sense, go into um, emergency mode, except that emergency mode just doesn't turn off. They're just constantly in emergency mode. And their most important thing to them is their kid's blood sugar, of course, because that's the ultimate basis of their immediate safety. Like if their blood sugar is not good, they're at risk immediately. But a lot of parents uh, will forget about all the other things because they're so worried about the blood sugar and they're willing to push other things to the side, um, like social consequences or not fitting in or, or whatever these fears and anxieties might be because there's no room for it in the way that they've been taught how to deal with diabetes. And that's very specific. It's the way they've been taught to deal with diabetes. That's the problem. We need to retrain how to live with this disease because it involves so much more than just blood sugar. Mic drop. (laughs) I feel like I just want to clap. Like, whoa. Yes. Yes. It's so true. Yeah. It brings a lot of, a lot of feels. Um, I mean, Raquel can attest to this, that, when, when my daughter was diagnosed at 26 months old, the social aspects weren't um, primary focus because we weren't in preschool yet. And we only had a couple of like friends that we were seeing for playdates frequently, especially because it was still during the pandemic. It was like, you know, tail end-ish of the pandemic. Um, but I very, very quickly caught on that she reacted in a more heightened way when she had to get her finger poked in front of people or an injection in front of people. And I was kind of going back and forth between like, I want you to embrace the, I have type one diabetes and it's no big deal to like dismiss the stigma and slowly but surely like shed the stigma but I also was like, this is, you're, you're clearly in distress here, but you're two and it's a needle. So how much of this is social? How much of this is emotional? How much of this is mental? How much of this is just you being a two-year-old saying, screw you, don't poke me with a needle? Right. Sometimes it's super at the surface. It's super yeah. like, yeah. I mean, why don't you want and, to change your pump? Because it hurts, duh. Like, yes. Yeah. Like- and then it's like, as, as she's aged and as we've like gotten into sports and preschool and whatever, my primary focus has shifted from your blood sugar needs to be 130 at all times to you need to live your life as a toddler. And I need to like keep you within a range so that you feel okay. And like, you know, intervene when you're over 200 for too long or when you're low, of course. But other than that, like I can feel myself prioritizing social, emotional things 
Ah. when 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 it's like um the time for that does that make sense i don't know lots of thoughts here lots of emotions yeah. as the mom of a type one well that's what toddler. i mean that's why I, that's why I try, i'm trying a lot of this retraining is training to be defensive and not offensive because i think a lot of the the subliminal like rhetoric behind how we're taught to manage diabetes is that we need we're playing offense we are proactively the pancreas. We are proactively giving insulin. We are shooting for a target of, you know, for you, maybe you said 130. Some people shoot for 85, yeah. some people shoot for 100. Yeah. That's, you know, and, and then what, you know, is actually secondary to that is that if you're not that, that you're, that that's wrong, that that's not right. And that's, that's a defeatist mentality. So I play, I play defense. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not aiming to be a hundred. I'm aiming to not go low or high today. And if I, if I have, you know, uh, like something coming up, that's, that's going to potentially affect my blood sugar or something serious where I might not like really want to cancel the potential consequences of a blood sugar change. Maybe your target for that moment should be 165 because you're not high yet, really dangerously high. And you're not certainly not dangerously low yet. But we're not having that conversation enough about defense. And the idea here is that, you know, we're not trying to hit a target. We're trying to squeeze and shrink the amount of space that we exist in, the amount of variability yes. we have. And you'll, you'll be like, you will feel so much more rewarded if you start counting metrics that way. I didn't go yep. low today. I didn't go high today. Were you 180 six hours? I don't know. Maybe, you know, <laughs> uh, but you weren't over 200. You weren't feeling your day didn't stop today because of diabetes. A lot of people are stopping their day or changing their day because they're so obsessed with being 100 or being 110. And, and there's like there's like a sense of magic behind this. Like you, you know, you are you're getting in the way of your of your life. Yep. Yeah. I love it. Oh, there's so there's so much gold in this episode. I can't <laughs> wait to cut it and find all the blips because so much of what you have said over the past hour is what Raquel and I want to like put out into the world via type one together. Mm -hmm. You got it, Andrew. You guys yeah. I, can't, I can't, I can't finish without thanking you guys and, and just saying that like, I've been a big fan uh, watching the progress this whole time. And and uh, like Raquel, you've connected me to so many amazing people in the space and are continuing to do so. Um, and this, you know, type one together, the position you guys are taking is a huge part of this solution. I, I see it. Um, I see people interacting with it online now more than ever. And it's uh, it's just awesome. I'm, I'm really amazed by it. So so thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Andrew. And if people want to get involved with what you're doing, help in any way or give feedback or whatever in the future, is there a way that people can find you? We can also put that in the show notes. Yes. Um, I am I, I, I'm looking to connect with a lot of people in the type one space right now. Um, so more more news will be shared kind of about like the, the product itself and kind of where I'm heading with this. But I'm definitely looking to connect with creative folks and tech folks. Um, who have type one um, directors, writers, actors, as well as programmers, people especially with experience in UI and UX design. Um, and especially, especially if you're in the LA area, because um, uh, we love uh, we love some in-person in interaction. But um, 
Instagram's a great way to connect. Um, that way we can stay passively involved, which I think is cool. Um, so my Instagram is at brilliant Andrew. Um, and I'm trying to post more. Uh, so, um, I'm looking to, uh, hopefully connect with more and more people. Um, spread more Yay. stories. We'll definitely so, connect you. Yeah. I was going to ask, are you, yeah. um, public? Is that a public Instagram page? Yes, I'm public. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, it is a public account. It's also my personal account. Um, so I'm kind of, it's, it's kind of, you know, some of it is just stuff from my life and like my family and some of it is about this, but I kind of made the decision this year to, um, run forward with just using that page for, um, all different kinds of uses, not just personal stuff. Perfect. Uh, cause I feel like Great. that's a big part of, of, the type of message that I'm trying to share. I want it to feel personal. Yeah. So we'll put it in the show notes for sure. And then we'll, we'll tag you when we drop our clips on Instagram so people can find you so and reach stoked. out. Yeah. Yes. 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 Um, we usually do a little blood sugar roll call at the end of each episode. And also everyone, Andrew was 108 when we started that podcast. Like oh, what? That was so cool. That was crazy. We got a photo. We have proof, but um. Amanda, what is Hattie at now? Hattie's at 233 right arrow. She's on the playground hoping that a little bit of uh, I asked her teacher to dose her for lunch early so that the insulin and the activity um, brings her down before she eats lunch at 1145. So, yeah. Nice. Andrew? I am at 125, but I like I said, it was a rough night, so... Um, I guess I worked hard for this one. <laughs> we know the feeling. I am 121, so we're pretty close. All hey, right. There we go. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you again so much. Um, this was an amazing conversation. And everyone, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us grow. It helps um, people who don't know about this podcast kind of like get it in their feeds and all that. So yeah, we can continue to grow and bring you lots more content and hopefully another conversation with Andrew soon. All right. Thanks everyone. We'll see you next week. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks guys.